Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. Monday, welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. Welcome, everyone. Just to get the business out of the way first, as always, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast, but... If you want to do something nice, you want to give us a hand, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Tell a friend. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History, and on Twitter at Snapshots In. You ever have one of those weekends where it feels like time just goes by way too quickly and next thing you know, it's Monday morning? I definitely had one of those weekends this weekend. Unfortunately, it wasn't a good one for hockey. I literally, as I mentioned a few episodes ago, I'm in the process of moving, so I spent the majority of my weekend packing and then unpacking. I didn't actually think it would be possible to find something I hate worse than gardening, but I have. It's packing. Anyways, I was able to go down and see the Washington Capitals play the Dallas Stars on Saturday night. It was cool seeing Jamie Benn, Tyler Sagan, as well as Jason Spezza play for the Stars. And it's so funny. I mean, we talk about how time goes by so quickly. I feel like it was just yesterday that Jason Spezza got drafted second overall and then was sent to the minors. I think he was sent to the American Hockey League or sent back to junior. I can't remember which one it was. And next thing you know, it's been like something like 15 years now. And now he's towards the end of his career. But I think this was the first time I ever saw him live, and I did see him score a sweet goal, so that was fun to see. On to snapshots in hockey history. Got a lot of great feedback last week from the Chris Felix episode, so thank you for that. Had a lot of people reach out over the past few weeks that are fans of the show, offering their support. It's great to converse with each and every one of you. Want to give a special shout out to Glenn Sharp, who reached out on Friday. Talked to him a little bit out of the, uh, I believe he's out of the Ontario area. It was great to talk to Glenn, big Toronto Maple Leafs fan, big fan of the Maple Leaf Gardens. Glenn was nice enough to recommend a few players for the show. So I look forward to connecting with those former NHLers uh, shortly. This week, we have a great guest. Brad Marsh joined us. Brad is a former defenseman that played in the National Hockey League during the 80s and the 90s. He's a former captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs, a former captain of the Philadelphia Flyers. I feel we could do an entire podcast just on Brad Marsh's career. Brad's now part of the Philadelphia Flyers Alumni Association. He actually is the president. For his episode, we talk about his career with the Philadelphia Flyers. So we focus in on the 86-87 playoffs, which many consider one of the greatest finals of all time between the Philadelphia Flyers and the Edmonton Oilers. We dig into the first two rounds of the playoffs in this episode, and Brad could not have been cooler. He actually was nice enough to do this while he was driving, I think on the New Jersey Turnpike. So if the audio is a little off, I apologize. But I'm going to keep this one really quick because this is a long interview. And that's the goal. I don't like getting these things more than about 30, 35 minutes. I know everybody's busy. The idea behind these is I want you to be able to listen to them on your way to work or during a quick workout. I don't want you to have to to set aside an hour to listen to each one of these. That's kind of why we divide them up into two episodes. Anyways, here's Brad Marsh. We'll catch you on the flip side. Enjoy the interview. So for the fans that might not know much about the Flyers from the 80s, how would you describe the Philadelphia Flyers? There in 1981, and it was a team in transition, if you will, from the Broad Street Bully era. They uh, they went to the finals in 1980, and they had a lot of a lot of injuries, and hence the trade from Calgary Flames to the Philadelphia Flyers for Brad Marsh. It was actually traded for Mel Bridgman, who was captain of the Flyers. I was captain of the Flames, so it was one of those. Things that don't happen in pro sports very often, a one-for-one trade, captain-for-captain trade. 
anyhow, they were a team in, in transition. The league was changing. The Islanders were just starting their run of four straight Stanley mm-hmm. Cups. And what happens a lot in, in all pro sports, not just hockey, is the team that wins, then the other 20 teams or how many are in the league tend to follow their formula of success, if you will. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the Islanders, they were a great team with great goaltending, great defense, and some forwards that could play a term for modern-day hockey 185 feet of the rink. Not just full sure. scores, but they back-checked. They're strong. They're tough. They had Trotje and Gillis and Nystrom. And of course, they had uh, famous uh, Mike Bossy. And so a lot of teams started following their recipe, if you will. And so the, the Flyers, they were in transition. Uh, the Broad Street mentality of rough, tough fight hockey was uh, not leaving the sport at that time, but you had to do more. So like I've said a couple of times, they were in transition, they were, they were trading, they were trying to get faster, trying to get younger, if you will. So when I went there in 81, a uh, very good team, made the playoffs, et cetera, et cetera, but we didn't have the success that the Flyers were used to. So in 84, the decision was made to really take the next major step. Bobby Clark retired and became general manager, and they brought in an unknown coach, Mike Keenan at the time. And the 84-85 Flyers, like we had six players, I believe, under the age of 21. Young team. So we were a very, very young team, and we weren't predicted to do much that season. But we ended up winning the President's Trophies, uh, much to the surprise of, of everyone and probably ourselves, too. So, uh, you know, we entered the playoff full of a lot of energy, a lot of hope, and uh, away we went. And we made it to the finals versus the Oilers. What did the team initially think about the team captain, Bobby Clark, being transitioned over to GM? Well, I think a lot of players were a lot of players were surprised because Clark, he was was still young. I believe mm-hmm. he was 36 years old, 37. He still had a lot of hockey left. He was in unbelievable shape. The one trademark of the Flyers is just before a lot of other NHL teams really adapted to this train off ice training and all that stuff. We were we were a very well conditioned team, and we always had these big uh, training camp physical fit contests, and you know a two mile run. And, bench press your body weight and all that kind of stuff and Clark always was in the top couple of the two mile run like he he was in excellent shape and so it surprised a lot of people but I think it was an opportunity that was presented to him by the ownership slash management of the team and uh he tackled it with uh he tackled it with the same vim and vigor that he uh you know he played the game with and uh um no surprise of anyone, he did an excellent job. He ends up putting, as you alluded to, the 1985 team together that ended up going to the finals. And then two years later, it's the 86-87 season, and you guys have a great regular season. You finish first in your division. You're being led by Tim Kerr and this young goalie named Ron Hextall. What were your early impressions of this rookie goaltender? Even go back to the previous year, Hexy was was playing very well. Remember his stats or anything in uh, in Hershey, which was our farm team at the time, and and the unfortunate uh, accident that led to Belly's death uh, happened. Of course, everyone was saying, "Bring up Hexy, bring up Hexy, bring up Hexy." And Clarky had the foresight all he needs to stay in the minors. He needs to develop at his own speed. He needs to see American League shots before he sees NHL shots. And 
you know, so he, not that he sacrificed a year because we had a very good team in the, in the 86, 87 season, you know, right up there and, and so on. And Bob froze and Darren Jensen played unbelievable. I think they won the, the Vesna or the trophy that year or the Jennings. Trophy. I think they won the Jennings. Yeah. I think they won the Jennings. Yeah, whatever the trophy was for the top goaltending tandem, if you will. And uh, excellent year, but Texie stayed in the minors and, and developed. And then, of course, next year he came up and and uh, took the league uh, by storm. And, of course, the playoffs, he, he was uh, a large reason uh, why we went to the finals and had success. The first round matchup is a rematch from the prior season. You guys will play the New York Rangers, but this Rangers team looks completely different from the team you played the season before. Phil Esposito was the GM of the New York Rangers. He made 16 trades in eight months. Only nine guys on that Rangers team were left from the team that you had played the prior year. When a GM is willing to make moves like that, does he get a reputation around the league? And does that intimidate guys that, you know, might be on that team where they might get a call that, hey, uh, uh, we're packing up, we're moving? Well, I guess that's why they called him Trader Phil. But uh, <laughs> um, the thing is, is the Rangers were in, tr- uh, in transition as well. If diehard hockey fans that you have listening to the podcast, uh, playoffs were divisional back in those days yep. as opposed to conference. And uh, the Rangers were our arch rivals. Uh, one, because of uh, geography, and two, and everyone likes to hate New York City and every team that plays there, whether the, the Yankees or the Knicks or the Giants or the Jets or whatever. And of course, Philadelphia fans always love beating the Rangers. They had some good success against us in the previous years in the playoffs, and it was to the point where we would finish I had miles ahead of them in the mm-hmm. standing and uh, quite often would have them in the first round, and quite often they beat us. And so it was a little nerve-wracking going into those playoffs, that first round playing the Rangers. But, you know, we had had lots of success leading up to it, so we were confident that we were going to win. As you said, it was a – the Rangers seemed to have your number when it came to the playoffs. Game one was a awful start for you guys. You ended up getting shut out 3 nothing. Uh, John Van Beesbrook stood on his head. Mike Keenan was your coach at the time, and I know we're not going to go game by game, and I'm not going to ask you specific moments in each game, but after a three to nothing loss like that, what is Mike Keenan, how does he respond to something like that? I can't really remember, sure. but Mike was a personality, and it was no holds bars coaching, and you go look at any of the professional sports, and there's always coaches that you know, would sit down and analyze and come down, okay, guys, this is how we have to do it. We have to, you know, tweak this and tweak this from an X's and O's standpoint. But then there's also coaches that throw the X's and O's out and challenge you as players, challenge you as athletes. And sometimes during those challenges, uh, there's lots of adjectives used. And, uh, you know, that's how Mike got the best of his players uh, by challenging them. One thing in those playoffs, we did lose game one, and we were a little shaky in the first period of the second game. And once again, back in those days, a lot of times you played back-to-back games in the mm-hmm. first round of the playoffs. And I uh, can't remember if this particular game was back-to-back, but uh, anyhow, it was all playoff hockey. Now they seem to take two and three days between right. games and so on. It drives me crazy. Right. You know, they just drop the puck and let's play. But anyhow, Dave Brown got in a fight. 
and I forget who he was in a fight with, but he had his way with him as he did with most of his opponents. <laughs> and the Spectrum faithful obviously went crazy. Well, Mr. Snyder, he he called the whoever he had to call and to play the fight again. <laughs> so play the fight again. <laughs> and the place went crazy. And so we came back and won that game. We came back and, and we, obviously we won the series. But there's so many little things that happen within the within a season or within a playoff round that is more than who scored the goal and who got the winning goal and, and who right. got the goal, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, Brownie, Dave Brown is a huge part of those flyer teams that and he pro- perhaps does not get the credit for it. He was more than just a guy that beat up people. He was a complete player. But on top of that, he knew when to fight and he knew the right time to fight during a game and he fought for the team he didn't fight for a notch on his belt or anything like that he could care less whether he won or lost the fight although he did win the best so he won most but yeah but he fought for the team and right. uh, he took it upon himself no one had to tap him on the shoulder and say well you better do something he knew what he had to do and he did it speaking of picking and choosing your spots you score a goal in game two and you are and I by no means am I hoping put you're a defensive defenseman. Goal scoring was not really part of your game, but for a guy like you, how do you pick and choose your spots of when to join the rush or when to go? Well, that's one of the things that Mike brought to the to the game and or brought brought to the Flyers and or brought to a player like myself. And you know, he gets a lot of criticism for being Mike or Iron Mike, if you will. Mm-hmm. He brought the best out in me, but he also he encouraged the the offensive rush was not just the three forwards attacking the the uh, the, the zone. Um, it was five guys joining the rush. And granted, when Mark Howe joins the rush, there's a little there's quite a few more options for the offensive players to consider. But even uh, an old slug like me joins the rush or is close to the rush. It just creates a a, a, a different. Uh, a different look, and so the players, the the defensive team, you know, they have to adjust how they cover and, and so on. And so, just the fact of me being up on the play does open up the passing lanes and and uh, some offensive scoring chances. And I usually say when I score, it's usually a mistake on the goalies because <laughs> opposed to anything that I did. <laughs> well, I think, you're, I think you're being a little hard on yourself. There's one player that returns back in game two. And then we'll move on to games three and four, who was taken from us way too soon. And I don't think a lot of newer hockey fans might know a lot about him. But can you talk a little bit about who Peter Zezel was? Well, Zez, as, as we referred to him, he was, you, you're, I don't want to say typical, but he was the center iceman and very strong on the faceoffs, uh, very smart in, in his uh, defensive zone. And, uh, you know, when you, when you rely on a player all season long and then that player comes back, it's just a sense of comfort that, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're intact, if you will. And whenever you put Pete on the ice, uh, there's a sense of re- reliability. And, uh, you know, you really do feed off the players that you play with. And, and when you begin feeding off the players that you play with, and there's a sense of confidence that what you're going to do will always be backed up by a teammate, then, you know, then you're ahead of the game, if you will. And he was a little bit of a heartthrob off the ice around this period, wasn't he? Well, once again, if you look at, 
you know, any team that, you know, kind of takes the town by storm, if you will. Sure. Uh, there's reasons for it. And as I mentioned earlier, we had uh, all these guys under the age of 21 on the team. And so, yes, Pete Zezel was a heartthrob, but so many of those young kids on the team uh, were heartthrobs within the city of Philadelphia. And, and we became, you know, yes, we were winning games, which always helps people to talk about you, but there was a whole new group of fans that became engaged in the game. And all of a sudden, all these young teenage girls were showing up to the games in Zezel jerseys, Derek Smith jerseys, Rick Tockett <laughs> jerseys, and Ronnie and Richie Sutter jerseys. And it was just exciting times in Philadelphia. And, you know, it wasn't too long ago where the Phillies, the baseball team in town, had the magical run, and, and uh, they won the pennant. But, you know, they had all the young kids uh, on the team as well, and it just gets the whole city, just rallies around them. Games three and four, you head back up to Madison Square Garden. You end up splitting the series, and just like that, it is a best-of-three series now against the Rangers. Um, game five is back at the Spectrum, and the Flyers edge out the Rangers three to two. The Flyers' defensive core is credited with being the difference maker. You guys only allowed 22 shots the entire game on Hextall. What were you guys doing? What was the mentality or, or what was the strategy defensively during this era? Well, the thing is, as I said earlier, that uh, offense was the five guys attacking the zone. Um, well, so is defense. And uh, once again, that's one of the things Keenan stressed was, was playing the entire rink. And so, uh, yeah, the defense was very solid. It was myself and Doug Crossman who, who played and uh, as partners, and uh, Mark Howe and Brad McCrimmon were partners. And uh, we played, uh, you know, fortunate. Uh, we played four defensemen a lot, and it was very fortunate uh, if you're one of the four because you get lots of ice time. Sure. Thanks if. It stinks if you're defenseman five and six, but uh, anyhow, we had a we were good defense, but it was our forwards that made the difference because there was no floating or allowed. The back checking was really back checking, back checking right through the neutral zone and so on, and that allowed us to stand up. Game six, the Flyers make it look easy. You end up beating the Rangers five nothing. Rick Tockett played a huge factor during the series. He ended up leading the team with five goals. Rick Tockett, of course, known for being an incredibly tough guy. With a guy like him, though, because I feel like he had both talents. He could score. He could play that tougher game if he needed to. Do you ever have to reel him back in and say, hey, we need you to focus on scoring? Or is he is that part of the magic of Rick Tockett, that he can do it all? Well, it's part of the magic. And, you know, just like I mentioned uh, with Brownie, he, you know, he knew when to fight and, and who to fight and uh, the appropriate game with the time of the game, when to, when to fight, when the team needed it. Well, it's the same as talk. You know, he, he knew when he had to be the tough guy. He knew when we needed him on the ice as opposed to sitting in the penalty box for five minutes. And, you know, I talk about talk quite often when I speak around to various functions. And, of course, I I, I compare him to like Terry O'Reilly, who mm -hmm. was a big player for the Bruins when I broke in in the 70s. And, and I got a lot of time for Terry O'Reilly, Rick Tockett, and Cam Neely, players like that, because uh, they're tough. And if you check them, they beat the crap out of you. If you. They're tough. And if you leave them alone in front of the net, they score goals. And so those, those players are invaluable to a team. And I, I think there's a lot of teams in the current NHL that are looking for players like that, not just the, the one-dimensional players. And it seems that's the way the league's going. You're either a 
goal scorer playing on the top two lines or you're a defensive player that your only role is to shut down the other team and not get scored on when when you're on the ice uh, type of thing but back in the in in the day players had to be able to do it all very rare to see that multi-talented player like you said. You end up though getting ready to go into the second series and it's against the New York Islanders who had just come off a six and a half hour game against the Washington Capitals. They ended up coming back three to one in the series to beat the Capitals in game seven. Game one starts out with Mike Keenan short shifting the team. Was this Mike's way of trying to capitalize on the Islanders situation with just playing a night or two before six and a half hours? Well, I, I would I would assume so. But then once again, if you look how, you know, Mike coached, uh, he coached on instinct and uh, a lot of times there was no really set, oh, you're our first line. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first line on any given night in a Mike Keenan team is the line that is going good and working hard. And so he would double shift lines, he would double shift players and uh, and so on and so on. And, and once again now, and I don't don't really like to get into comparing now versus then and, sure. and, and, and so on and so on. But, you know, you hear so often, oh, yeah, we just rolled four lines, just rolled four lines. Well, look, to me, that leads to a boring game because you know who's coming up next. Right. You know what they're going to do. Right, it's predictable. That. Yeah. Whereas it, it's great when you see the superstars of the teams out every other shift. Speaking of superstars, that game one, Tim Kerr knocks in two goals. Islanders coach Terry Simpson decides to replace Kelly Rudy with Billy Smith. That's not enough to stop Tim. He ends up netting a hat trick. Tim scored 58 goals during the regular season. Heck of a goal scorer. What skills did he have that made it possible for him to score so many goals? Well, a couple things. One, Tim was probably at at the time, and I know, you know, modern day athletes, it's a 12 month sport and everybody's Mm -hmm. strong and everybody works out and everybody's conditioned and so on and so on. But in the 80s, you know, Tim was probably the strongest player in the league. Uh, his upper body strength was second to none. And so as a defenseman, you couldn't move him in front of the net. And, you know, and I think if you looked at where Tim's, I don't know how many goals he scored in his whole career, but I think the vast majority of them were scored within the goal crease or within that radius around the net. Nobody could move him. And secondly, and this is something you can't teach, is his hand-eye coordination was phenomenal. You know, batting pucks out of the air, deflections from shots from the blue line, and so on and so on. It's his hand-eye coordination was just was tremendous. Game two was played at the Spectrum on April 22nd. It was a very close game, but with three seconds left in the game, Miko Michaela from the Islanders is able to score a goal, gives the Islanders the 2-1 victory. Do you remember what Led to that goal or anything like that? No, not at all. Too many men on the ice. No big deal. We'll blame we'll, we'll blame Mike Keenan for that one. Exactly. That's why I brought it up so you could say, yeah, Mike didn't coach right. Yeah, yeah. We head to Long Island for games three and four, and Flyers Mark Howe, longtime defenseman, scored a goal and had two assists. Mark Howe, of course, is the son of Gordy Howe. You talked about him a little bit earlier. I know he was nicknamed Mr. Eraser. What was his game like? Well, needless to say, his, his game was second to none. He's in the Hall of Fame, and Howie is such a great teammate, and there's nothing you would never know that he was. I always called him the quiet superstar mm-hmm. uh, because, he, you know, he, he, he didn't brag. He didn't talk about himself. He just got the job done on the ice. Howie was unbelievable at the offensive side of the game, you know, with just look at the points that he scored, but 
people tend to forget about Howie, uh, or overlook perhaps, is how strong he was defensively in his own zone. And, you know, you, you look at the defensemen of today, I think a lot of them took a page out of Mark Howe's book, just like a lot of players from the 80s took a page out of Bobby Orr's book. And uh, there's more to playing the game of defense than just being strong in your zone. Howie's first pass out of our zone, coming from an era of, you know, hard around the boards and just get it out at all costs, and then we'll attack him in the neutral zone. You know, he, he, he changed the game for how a lot of the defensemen growing up would play as they developed through their minor hockey and junior careers is there's more to getting the puck out of your zone rather than shooting it around the glass or shooting around the boards. It was that first pass. He could he could spring the centerman, he could spring the winger on those breakaway passes better than better than anybody. I think the quiet superstar is the best way to describe him because he's not a guy you hear a lot about, but he is a Hall of Famer. He was unbelievable. He had, I mean, I almost feel like he's overshadowed by Gordy's status, but he was. Well, oh, I was just going to say, and, uh, and I can't remember. I mean, obviously we could go back in the notes and say, I don't even know if he was ever considered for a Norris Trophy. And, uh, you know, I mean, he didn't win it, but. I don't know if he came second or third or, or made the final ballot or whatever. I'm not I'm not sure. But, you know, he also played in an era where, you know, Dennis Potvin was pretty good and Larry Robinson was, was still pretty darn good up in Montreal. And, of course, the, the Paul Coffees of the world was stealing a lot of the headlines, you know, with the, with the Oilers. Of course, he had a pretty darn good supporting cast. But like I said, Howie, Howie was great, and he didn't go after the accolades or the personal this and the personal that. He, he just played the game, and he wanted to win, and he wanted his te- teammates to do good. Game four is a 6-4 to four win for the Flyers. The Flyers score three power play goals with Pelly Eklund kind of leading the way. He was a huge player on the power play. Do you recall why the power play was so potent at the time? Did Keenan have certain guys set up in a certain system? I remember when Mike came to the to, to, to the Flyers. Uh, it was one of the first times brought in a new practice uh, regime. Rather, you stand on the ice for two hours and you go over X's and O's and stuff. Uh, he practiced everything. All his practices were high tempo. We practiced everything at full steam ahead, uh, and we spent a lot of time on our power play. We spent a lot of time on our penalty kill, and it just wasn't the power play passing the puck around. It was power play practice in game situations with penalty killers such as myself. I never got on a power play, but practice, I was a, I was a penalty killer during the game. And so, you know, we had a lot of heated practices, if you will, where it was the power play guys versus the penalty killing guys. And a lot of the practices, as I said, were at game, in game situations. And it was the first time really that we, uh, I had experienced that. And uh, so, you know, we had the right players to put on the power play with with Howie and Timmy Kerr and, and Kelly Eklund, Brian Prop, et cetera, et cetera. So we were going to be successful regardless, but the way we practiced the power play made us more successful. It gave us the opportunity to be more successful. Game five is unfortunately a loss to the Islanders. After the game, Mark Howe is quoted as saying in the Philadelphia Inquirer, I've said it before, that the Soviets are the best team in the world when they have a lead, and the Islanders are the best team in the world when they have to come from behind. Is that an accurate statement for the Islanders during this era? Well, if you, once again, if you look at the Islanders, and there's famous quotes, and you know they were pretty strong 
through the, the late 70s there and, and there's uh, they got beat by I forget who they got beat by and there's a quote and I forget who, who said it. it might have been Mike Bossy or Trotche or somebody like that is uh, they didn't know the sacrifice it took to win yeah. you know the, the team they were playing they you know they're all bandaged up they got ice bags on and all that stuff and that was a real wake-up call for them and so you know when you see a team or a player and, and they mature it, it's all things that they've learned or experienced previously and uh, the Islanders, you know, they'd won lots of Stanley Cups uh, in, the, in the 80s, as we all know. And so uh, they knew what it took to win, and there's there's no giving them. And, you know, Brian Trotsky, uh, he's he was such a great player and a tough, hard player to play against. And when you have, you know, people always talk about captains. Who's the captain of your team? And if you look at the Islanders, you know, they could have had 10 different captains. There's just not one guy who wears the C. And uh, if you look at any team, once again, in any sport, the, the success of that team comes from their core leadership. It's just not one guy. It's got to be several guys that, that are leading the team. And that's what the Islanders had. You talk about Brian Trottier and Mike Bossy and how loaded these Islanders teams were. As an NHL defenseman, Bossy and Trottier are such different players. Do you have to change your game depending on who's out there? Well, it comes back to saying you have to be aware who's on the ice. And, uh, you know, the game of hockey is fast. You change on the fly. It's the only sport where you change on the fly. And so the times you start against a particular line and then, you know, the, the coach, you know, has the quick change during the when the puck's in the neutral zone type of thing. So all of a sudden you're out against Bossy Trotsche. And uh, so you have to be aware whenever you're on the ice who is on the ice. And that goes for, you know, tough guys when they're on the ice. Believe me, when when you're playing against a tough guy and and you don't know something that tough guy's on the ice, you're liable to get pounded by that tough guy. You always got to be aware of who's on the ice. Game six is a loss for the Philadelphia Flyers. You go into game seven. The team ends up having an unbelievable win with a five to one win. And Dave Poulin returned to the lineup. Dave Poulin was the captain of the Flyers at the time. And he was compared as the closest thing to Bobby Clark without having Bobby Clark on the team. How would you describe him as a captain? We had such a good leadership core on the team that we're good. But when your actual captain is inserted back in the lineup, just as I talked about Zezel coming back in the lineup, it's just a sense, such a sense of, uh, of comfort uh, out there. And, and Pooley was the type of leader that you know, I can't really say, oh, he said this before a game right. or he said this in between periods he just led by example he led by example not only in the games but in practice and and in off-ice training and just the way he carried himself he was uh, a true professional we just talked about the team captain you were wearing an a at the time and i know you were a captain in atlanta and i think you were eventually a captain in toronto as well what are the responsibilities though of an assistant captain well i never really looked at oh I have the C therefore I have to do this or say this or mm -hmm. I have the A therefore I have to say or do this the reason why a particular player has a captain or an assistant captain is is, is because how they in my opinion how they carry themselves how they conduct themselves um, how they approach each day of being a professional athlete and that that, that, that rubs off uh, or that's very much noticed by the rest of the team, the younger players on the team in training camp. And it just kind of sets 
the bar. Well, if he's doing this, maybe I better do this and not that. Lead by example. If you liked part one of this episode, I think you're going to like part two even more. Brad goes into talking about playing against the Montreal Canadiens, the famous line brawl that took place during that playoff series, as well as against playing the Edmonton Oilers, and also what does a team do after they lose in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals? He digs into all that and so much more. Once again, thank you so much for stopping by. We'll see you again Thursday at 8 a.m. for another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History.